knowing that it is only by your great grace through the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, through his finished work and our belief in and trust in him and his work and in you and your promise. <laughs> oh, Lord, you are so good. Lord, now we pray help us now as we come before you and as we fellowship, you know, as we are to take communion, as we are about to have your word preached to us, as we are about to, you know, sing songs of praise and, and thanksgiving to you. Help us, Lord, to put those weights and those other concerns and weights of the world, you know, that, that, you know, that, that we have, help us to put them aside and help us to focus on you and eternal truths and focus on your goodness and your truth and your love. Lord, may you be truly pleased in all that we do today and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please stand. We're going to be opening up with uh, Rock of Ages today. 
406 on Crisis Solid Rock FM.
The inspired, accurate, accurate history of the founding of the church. Amen? Amen. Acts 21, beginning in verse 27. <clears throat> Wanted to make sure. Amen? And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus, an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple. And forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came in to the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing, some another, among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was, that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, Away with him! And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art now that Egyptian, which before these days made us an uproar and led us out into the wilderness, 4,000 men that were murderers? But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and, I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people, and when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying, Let us pray. <laughs> oh, Father, again, we open up a prayer. So I simply pray your word tells us you have given us your great word. When we, you have sent us the gift of your son, you revealed him to us. We have believed on him and trusted in him for our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins, our justification before you. You have given us eternal life in him. And we thank you so much for your grace and love. Father, you tell us in your word that through your word you give us understanding, discernment. That your, your word in and of itself, Lord, is all we need for the man to be fit, to be complete unto all godliness. And you're ready to stand against all ungodliness. So, Lord, now help us to put aside those weights. Help us put aside those thoughts. And, Lord, as your word says, may all who are yours who are here be instructed, taught, corrected, reproved, trained in righteousness, and be made more and more complete, and be built up stronger and stronger, and may the fallen man, the old man, become weaker and weaker, and that you be glorified in all things, Lord. And if there be any sheep that are lost that are here or here or, or hear this message, Father, may you use it to open their eyes and soften their hearts and reveal your Son to them that they might be saved. 
In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Hey, man. Well, so thankful. Brother Keith, uh, you're, you're pretty fast on the drawback there with that, uh, with that uh, slide uh, show that we had there. So thank you uh, so very much. Well, again, brother, it's so good to have us together, although there are many, many uh, who are, shall we say, under the weather this morning. Amen. And uh, Dean's family, part of my family, and, and uh, many of the brothers and sisters are not feeling well. So we'll continue to pray for them as well. And as many of you know, last week we deviated a little bit from the book of Acts. Well, a whole lot, actually. And, uh, and so we're going to take up again the book of Acts this morning in a very and most important, as they all are, portion of Holy Scripture. Again, there's so much history. Again, the Bible is a book of history. Amen. It is a book of science. It is a book of all these things. And uh, surely here we have the inspired history of the church. And even as it's going to uh, be confirmed by those outside, Josephus this morning is going to help us understand part of this text. And uh, again, it is so important as we are gathered together. Well, we remember the last time we were together here in the book of Acts that, that uh, Paul and, the, and, the, and his group had finally arrived at the Jerusalem church and uh, James and the elders were there. And they, they were certainly glad. The, the Bible says that they welcomed them gladly. And we remember that there was a certain sect within the church, if you will, some Jewish Christians who were still holding the law in high esteem. And so uh, James and the elders recommended to Paul, hey, why don't you go through this purification uh, thing with these other four men who, here who are in the church for the sake of unity. And we talked about Christian liberty just a little bit. We touched just a dab on that, that Paul indeed had the Christian liberty to do that. And why would he have the Christian liberty to do that? Because it was not trifling with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, brethren, it is in that portion of that text where you know Paul has been accused of compromising the gospel. And, uh, and we looked at that. And again, God this morning in his wisdom gives us again a more clear picture for us, if you will, of what Paul was actually doing there. And again, I, I call it a, if you will, a divine suspension, a divine interruption in what Paul was doing as far as going. And he was, remember, he was going to go and he paid for the sacrifices. He was going to pay for them. But I want us to take note again here, again, because Paul, brother, there are some things we can do a little, shall we say, have some disagreements on. Amen? And we understand that. You can have different views. I'm sure we have a plethora of views on eschatology here this morning. Um, but you can be wrong on that, and I can be wrong on that and still be saved. But you cannot, when you have the gospel wrong, uh, or any portion of it, or add to the gospel, brethren, you are in trouble. And so we see this here, God, as he again intervenes. Even if you think for a moment that Paul was going to compromise the gospel message, Look here with me, if you would. God, again, and I call it a divine interruption, a divine, a divine suspension, even if you think Paul was going to go and make these sacrifices. And I want you to see some of the words here in verses 26, 27, verse 30, and verse 33. I want, again, what I call a divine suspension, even if you think Paul was going to go do that. I want you to look there with me, if you would. Look at verse 26. Again, there's words that are going to come out to us this morning and say, yes, even if you think he was going to do that, God suspended it. He interrupted it. He halted it. Because again, brethren, brethren, God would never allow his gospel preacher to compromise, to contradict the gospel, that which Paul has been preaching all along the way to the Jews and to the Gentiles alike. And I want you to see this again here as we see this here in Acts chapter 21. Look at verse number 26. We'll just bring out a couple of words. Then uh, Paul took the men, and next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification. Now, that word until, that next word is extremely important. The word until, what? It says that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Well, Paul came, and as he was going, doing, he was telling the priest it's going to be seven days. That word until tells us that it hasn't been completed. The purification process has not been completed. Look there at verse number 27, another word that comes out. And when the seven days were almost ended, until it almost ended means that it did not happen, brethren. So what happened? God, even again, if you think for five seconds that Paul compromised the gospel, which I do not believe, I would never believe that, 
God interrupted it by doing what? And it wasn't done. The purification wasn't finished until it was ended. And then it, it, it almost was there. And then look what God does. See, we look sometimes at the sovereignty of God at work in the circumstances in our own lives even. Look what he does here in verses, verse number 30. Look what happens in verse number 30. And all the city was moved and the people ran together and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple. And forthwith the doors were what? The doors were shut. So in other words, Paul was apprehended. And, you know, he never even got there. He never even got close to offering up these sacrifices because God, again, brings this uprising and intervenes. And Paul gets apprehended. Not only did he get apprehended, he gets arrested. Look there, if you would, at verse number 33. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded, uh, demanded who he was and what he had done. So again, brother, there it is. There's our clear and unholy, uh, if you will, our, our holy, I should say, answer to those who think Paul compromised the gospel. Even if he was going to, God did not allow it. Amen. He simply gets him apprehended, gets him arrested, puts him in chains long before the, the, the sacrifices were to be offered. So again, brethren, this is important because, again, they've accused him. Many have accused him of compromising the gospel, which Paul would never do. And, brethren, neither should we. Amen. Again, there's liberty. We have liberty to do some things. Paul had the liberty to do some of these things, but it was not compromised by any stretch of the imagination, by the intervention, of course, of God. Paul, what did he teach? What have we been seeing through this inspired narrative? That one is saved by grace alone. Amen through the gift of faith alone, by the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. That's what he preached, this is what he continues to preach, and this is what we continue to preach. Again, God would never allow that thing to be interrupted in such an unholy way. Never, ever would he allow that. Now look there, if you would, at verses 27 and 28. Look what the Bible says there. And when the seven days were almost ended, there it is again, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You ever had somebody just screaming and yelling for help? This literally is the scene. This is what's happening here. There is a tumult, a stirring up, if you will, within the temple. And they're all yelling, hey, men of Israel, you need to come and help us. you got to get over here. We've got to apprehend this guy. We finally got him right where we want him, amen. And you need to come and help us. And then look what they accuse him of. It's amazing. Exaggerations are so wonderful. And actually, it's not an exaggeration to a degree. But look at the language they use. Look what they say to him. They say to him, they say this, uh, And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which are of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere. You see that there? I mean, it's all men. He, and he did. He is teaching all men everywhere. He's preaching what? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do they accuse him of? He's teaching all this stuff to all men everywhere. What's he teaching them? He, they, were, uh, they accuse him here again. Everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. Again, brother, this accusation. Now, this should be a song. In your ear, that's a very common song that we've heard before, over and over again. We're going to see, really, in this whole text, the ironies, the holy ironies, I call them, of what's taking place. It's quite a stunning thing to see this. They're accusing him of preaching against the people, of preaching against the temple, and preaching against the Torah. Again, a common song that these unbelieving Jews have been singing from the very beginning. It really is quite a stunning thing what you think about. So they accuse him of teaching against the people. What does that mean? Like when we read this text, what does teaching against the people mean? Well, I'm glad you asked this morning. Really, literally what they were saying is, is that Paul was teaching. Think of this, brethren, for just a moment. Think of this. The Jews believed who were the only people of God. The Jews believed that. They thought they were the only people of God, that there were no other people. And what Paul, what's Paul doing? He's saying through the gospel, there's other people. The Gentiles are being brought in through the gospel, and so they're accusing him of teaching against God's people because they believed they were the only people. It is a most stunning thing when religionists get stuck in their religion. Amen. In their works-related salvific ways. It's in a, well, I should say unsalvific, non-salvific ways because religion can't save you. When you get stuck in that, when you're in that dark, deep pit and the Lord, the Spirit of God is not working on your heart to draw you out of there, it is a stunning thing, the slavery that you are in. 
And this again is what we see. He's teaching these, what is Paul saying? There's other people. The Jews thought they were the only ones, literally. And so this is what they're accusing him of. Now, I want to read just a portion of scripture for us this morning. Again, this is Paul consistently teaching the gospel. Teaching if the two are becoming one. That literally, the Jews in the old covenant used to be what? God's chosen people. They still are. I don't think that God's done with them yet. But here, the gospel is being preached, and they're being brought together in one, in unity, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so turn with me, if you would, just for a moment. Again, a familiar portion of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, for just a moment this morning. Again, Paul staying consistent with uh, his preaching, with his teaching. And uh, we look here in Ephesians chapter 2 again. Now, these Jews, again, were having issues with someone. And we know in the Old Covenant, right, under the Old Testament, that a non-Jew could draw nigh unto God. But what did he have to do? He had to become a Jewish proselyte. And they were ticked off at Paul's teaching that you can come near to God without being a Jewish proselyte first, without circumcision, without following the law, without doing all of these things. And Paul, again, remember, he has left Ephesus. He writes this wonderful and glorious letter to Ephesus to the brothers in Ephesus. And this is what he says. Look there, if you will, at verse number 11. He says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past, now he's talking about dispensations. That would have been the old covenant. We got the dispensations Paul is discussing here. Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, which is Jew and Gentile. That's what he's distinguishing between. In the old covenant, under the old dispensation of time, you Gentiles were just like this. And look what he says in verse 12. That at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, Paul used to believe that, didn't he? He used to go after Christians who taught that we were saved in Christ alone. So Paul simply is addressing again the same thought that he had. What, I, I was thinking about this. What an amazing thing it is. For a man who was thought like Paul did, who was on his way to a devil's hell, that God would be so gracious and intervene and change that mind. Because the very thing that he is going to be accused of here and is being accused of is the thing that he used to accuse. That's the irony. There's so many ironies in our text this morning. It's just amazing how this unfolds. But look there, if you would. Without God in the world, but now... That is, again, he's addressing the dispensation of the church age. He's talking about the generation, the dispensation we're in now, the dispensation of grace. Brothers, it's always been the dispensation of grace, hasn't it? We've always been saved by grace. No one's ever been saved by their works. But this is the dispensation of the church age. And look what Paul says. But now, this dispensation of time, the position of the Gentiles after their conversion in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes were far off, were made nigh by the blood of Christ. And so, brethren, this is exactly what they're accusing him of. He's teaching against the people. Are you saying there's other people? Yes, there's other people. There's Gentiles who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, they're brought in in the new covenant. And they're accusing Paul again of the very thing that he, at one time, before the road to Damascus, that experience that he had, and three days later when his eyes were opened, God shut his eyes to open his eyes to see, amen, and get saved. I mean, it's an amazing thing. Isn't it amazing what salvation does to a man? How it changes a man or a woman, their heart, their thinking, all of it. And again, this is what they're accusing Paul of. Second of all, we see there, don't we, brethren, not only was he accusing, were they accusing him, of course, of, uh, if you will, of teaching uh, against the people, but against the law and the temple. The charges, again, that rang out, brother, and again, we think now, as we've gone along here, some 25 years earlier, the same exact accusations were made against one man who Paul was consenting to his death. Do you remember who that was? Amen. Again, this is the irony in these things. This is the amazement of it all, that Paul himself, who accused Stephen, and those who were there, Paul's consenting to his death. I want you to see this by way of remembrance. Again, the irony in it is so stunningly amazing. The glory of God, what he does when he saves a man and changes their hearts and their minds. Look at Acts chapter 6. Let's just look there quickly. I want you to see this again. Remember, they're accusing him of teaching against the law and against the temple, which is quite stunning. In other words, against the Torah and against this holy place. A song they sing 
It's a song they've been singing, and they will continue to sing even to this day. They still sing this amazing song that is drummed up by the evil one himself. Look there, if you would, Acts chapter 6. Look at verse number 11, just by way of uh, reminder. Verse 11, Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people. There it is again. And the elders and the scribes came upon him and caught him and brought him into the council. And set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say. So here it is again. That accusation, the same thing, 25 years earlier. You've got to remember this, brethren, 25 years earlier. They said the same exact thing about Stephen, where later on he is what? Paul standing there. They stoned Stephen, and the Bible says that the, those who did it laid their cloaks at the feet of who? At the feet of Saul. So he was there consenting. Accusing, accusatory of the same thing. Again, I call it a holy irony that Paul, as he was consenting to Stephen's death, is now being accused of the very same thing that he used to accuse others of. And again, brethren, we see the glorious work of God in Paul's heart and mind. We see it even more as we continue on in our text together this morning. Look there at Acts 21. Look at verses 28 and 29. Again, as we piece this thing together. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place. And further brought Greeks into the temple, which hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city of Tremophius, an Ephesian, uh, in the city, Tremophius, I should say, uh, an Ephesian, whom they su supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Well, brethren, the key word there is supposed. They supposed that they saw Paul doing this, which is quite a stunning thing. Again, another accusation that they bring against Paul. The temple, now, just to help us kind of set the scene so we understand really where they're at in the temple, what's taking place where they're actually at. I want to just, for a moment, just remind us that the temple was made up of four courtyards. And again, historically, this is so important because what they're accusing Paul of never happened. It did not happen. Again, the Bible says they're supposing it in their minds. But if you remember how the, how the, uh, the temple was set up, we have, first of all, you, you know, you would, what, what it is, you'd enter into the temple, and there was much access here in the outer courts, as you moved further into the temple, that access began to become less and less. So in other words, it's greater to lesser. So when you walked into the temple, the first thing you'd walk into is what? The temple outer court. That's what they called it the what? The court of the Gentiles. It is there where uh, the Gentiles would come in. They were allowed as proselytes to worship God in that outer court, but they could go no farther. That was it. And as you progressed inward, as you continued into the temple, again, the restrictiveness of it all um, becomes very apparent. In fact, there was a very important thing in Scripture that took place here in the court of the Gentiles, in the outer court. And I want you to see this again, just as we're seeing as we progress this thing in, the accusations against Paul just simply are unholy and untrue. Turn with me to a familiar Seen a familiar portion of scripture, if you would, Matthew chapter 21. This is where this took place, the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. Look here, if you would, Matthew chapter 21, just to kind of give us an idea as we're working our way in, in the temple and, and having an understanding of what they're doing. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Look at verse number uh, 14. Matthew chapter uh, 20, or yeah, verse 12. Matthew 21, look at verse Number 12, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a house of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and healed them. This is in the outer court. That's where this took place, the court of the Gentiles. They were in there, remember, brethren, selling doves. Remember, you had to have a dove, you had to have, a, you had to have a sacrifice when you'd come to offer it up. And what they were doing is, they were sitting out in the outer court here, and they were charging, Howard needs to buy a dove, they're normally six bucks, they're charging 26 bucks. They're robbers. This is, what, this is where this took place, in the outer court. This is where this took place. Right here, Jesus looks and casts them and tosses them on out of there. Well, from there, you would enter in from the outer court, you would then enter into what would be called the court of the women. 
you go from the outer court, you enter in then into the court of the women, where, of course, in the Old Testament, in the second court, uh, it was the only area of the temple complex where women, imagine this, what would the feminazis say about this? The only place in the temple where the women were allowed to worship. And again, brethren, we went from the outer court into the second court now, where it's the court of the women. Do you know what else? There's another, again, a very important thing that took place in the women's court. I want you to see this again. This is so interesting as we, as we walk on into the temple together this morning. Look there at Matt, Mark chapter 12, just over. I want you to see this again. This, of course, is a place, uh, if you will, the women's court that contained two poor boxes. Two poor boxes. And we see here again as we walk into the temple, the outer court, the women's court. And this took place in Mark chapter 12. Again, giving us just an idea of where we're at in the temple this morning. Mark chapter 12. Look there, if you would, at verse 41. And Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld now how uh, the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor what? Widow, a woman. This is where the woman's at. She's in here worshiping. This is the women's courtyard. This is where she's at. And this poor woman, again, remember, this is where they kept the two poor boxes, kind of like we got an offering box back there. They would keep that there. What did she do? Well, look what the text says. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and said unto them, Verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. Again, this is where he's at. He's in the outer court casting them out. Now he's in the women's court, uh, if you will, talking about the widow and her might, because, again, the only place in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the complex that they were allowed to worship. Then you went from the women's court into the men's court. Now, brethren, <laughs> again, you're seeing the restriction. Everybody could be in the outer court. It was ladies only in the, in the, in the women's court. Now it's, we enter into what we would call the men's courtyard, where the priests, many of the priests would be, and no one else was allowed in there. No one else was allowed in there. Just the men who were ceremonially clean, they were allowed to come into that, that portion of the temple. And uh, as we move on into there, of course, they would enter in then to the innermost court, which would be called the Holy of Holies, where one man, brethren, think of this for a moment. You see the restrictions. See how it's getting restricted down. They are accusing Paul of bringing this Gentile from the Gentile outer court into the third courtyard, into the men's courtyard, where only Jewish men who are ceremonial clean are allowed. That's why this is so important. Again, and finally, it's so restricted by the time we get into the fourth courtyard that it is indeed the Holy of Holies where, brethren, you remember, one man, once a year, one man, once a year, that's it. The high priest was allowed to go in, and he used to what? To offer up sacrifices for the sins of the people. So again, we see this restrictiveness as it goes along. Again, as I don't want to repeat myself, but I will. This is what they're accusing Paul of, that he would dare to bring this Gentile from the outer court into the, past the second court into the third court of the Jewish men who were only allowed um, to, to come in there if you were a ceremonially clean Jewish man. And there's, there's, again, there's, there's so much here, brethren, as you figure this out. And I, I like what, uh, what one pastor said. He said, this is exactly what these pernicious purveyors of perversity were falsely accusing Paul of doing, bringing a Gentile beyond the barrier of the Gentile courtyard. Now, interestingly enough, brethren, not only could a Gentile, did he take on the death penalty if he, if he did cross into that area, did you know that the Roman government, if a Roman citizen did it, it was by death penalty. He also took it on himself. That's how restricted, this is how important this was to the Jewish community as we're seeing this. Amen. So for a man to be accused that he's bringing a Gentile into this thing, it is a certain death sentence. Even a Roman citizen would be killed if they went into the, into the inner courts of the temple which is quite amazing, brother, when you think about that. So we see the seriousness of the charge. This isn't just some light thing that they're charging Paul with. He's bringing this Gentile in. Well, that's death penalty, brother. That is death penalty for the Roman citizen and for the Jew alike if he's unclean and brings something unclean into the courtyard of the men. In fact, we see their reaction 
when he does it. Again, this is why it's so important to understand historically where we're at in this thing. Look back at our text there. Look at their reaction to it. In fact, it is a most unholy reaction because it isn't true. They supposed he did that. He did not do it. Um, but they were busy trumping up, wanted to start some riots and some things like that in the city. So look at verses 31, uh, 30, 31, 32, and 33. Look what the Bible says there. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as uh, they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. There again, see, we've got these, the, if you will, these Jews, these Asian Jews, who, these diaspora Jews causing all manner of trouble. They're just busy, uh, if you will, bringing on a huge, huge uproar. Verse 32, who immediately took soldiers and centurions, and ran down onto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. Now again, brethren, this is where it all starts. This is the unholiness of it all. This is where the diaspora Jews are, if you will, riling up the Jews who are there in the city of Jerusalem. And they're causing this huge, huge uproar. It is an unholy, frenzied riot, brother. And I'm telling you, we've seen it before. This is what they do. This is their specialty. This is how much they hate Christ and Christianity. They will do anything to stop any preacher from preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what they did. Now, it is also here that we find another holy irony, if you will, and that the Romans whom God uses here, it's a stunning thing, brother. It's actually the Romans who God uses to preserve Paul's life. In his sovereignty, he takes Paul, who is going to be beaten, going to be killed, and the Roman centurions come, and if you will, the chief captain here that the Bible says. Now, it's interesting if you look at the text there together. This high-ranking Roman military officer, God uses him to preserve Paul's life. It's a stunning thing. Again, brother, just when you think that God, that he just controls everything, every aspect, every creature, everything that takes place, God is sovereignly controlling it. And he's bringing about and saving Paul's life here. There is no doubt. Luke tells us that this Roman uh, centurion, or this Roman uh, chief, if you will, commanded a band, a cohort, which is contained a thousand soldiers. So this man had a thousand soldiers at his command. He could tell them, do this, do this, do this, and these thousand soldiers would, without even questioning it, like our military used to be, without even questioning it, they would go and do whatever he told them to do. Amen? That's what he did. So he sent soldiers and centurions, the Bible says, to quell this riot. Now listen, and to rescue Paul. This is very, very important. So he's got a 1,000 soldiers at his command. So he sends these soldiers, some of these soldiers. And if you look there, if you read carefully in verse number 32, look what it says. Who immediately took soldiers and centurions. That's a plurality. Brethren, if I asked you this morning, what is a century? Oh, we can blurt it out. We can blurt it out. It's 100, okay? It's 100. So there's plurality here. There's centurions, which means there's at the very minimum, 200 soldiers that he sends into this riot, into this tumult, to rescue Paul, to take him, if you will, into his custody. Amen. And you say, well, how do you know he rescued Paul? Because he tells us he did. Look here, brother, and move ahead just a little bit. I want you to show again. The sovereignty of God at work, using a Roman government official to grab his preacher and to save him because the Jews were indeed beating him and they were going to kill him. There is no doubt about that. And here, God uses this Roman uh, soldier, this military man, if you will. In fact, we know his name because Luke tells us, and look at Acts chapter 23. Luke tells us exactly who it was. And I want you to see how Claudius uses the language that I use, that he rescued Paul, because that's exactly what he did. He rescued him from the Jews. Look there at Acts 23. Look at verse number 22. Look there what the Bible says. So the chief captain then let the young man depart. This, of course, is Paul's nephew who has just told him, hey, there's a, the Jews are trying to, they're, they're laying in wait. They're not going to eat. They're not going to drink till they kill Paul. And so he's in there telling this man this thing. So the Bible says there, uh, see thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. 
And he called on to him two centurions. Well, that's again 200 saying, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea. And horsemen, three score and 10, that's 70. So we have 270. He's, again, rallied, just getting his troops together to watch over Paul. And spearmen, 200. So that's 470 men at the third hour of the night. And provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix, the governor. Now he writes a letter. I want you to see how he, uh, what he includes in the letter. When I said he rescued Paul, I didn't say that. Claudius says it. Look there, if you would, at verse 26. Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and what? And rescued him. Brethren, again, here we go, the sovereign hand of God using every creature, using every available, and everything's available to him to take his preacher, his preacher, to bring him into custody to save Paul's life. And he uses a Roman official. And the Roman official even says, yeah, the Jews were going to kill him. I came and I rescued him. Amen? So he's telling Felix this. And so, again, we see the sovereign hand of God at work as he's saving his preacher because soon they will have their way with Paul, but not now. God is not finished. He will continue to use him to preach, and we're going to see that. He's got three huge sermons yet to come in chapters 22, 24, and 26, which God's going to use him in, and we're going to see that Lord willing together. So Luke here really gives us an amazing contrast between the Jewish hostility, which Claudius writes about himself right here, between, uh, that they have between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Roman justice. Does this ring a bell? Again, the Romans were protecting Paul. The Jews were trying to kill Paul. Can I ask you this morning? If it was Wednesday night, I'd ask you, and we all know this. How many trials did Jesus face? Do you remember that? Somebody could tell me. It's six. There were six trials that he faced on the way to the cross, three by the Jews and three by the Romans. Who was it that kept watching over Jesus trying to let him go? Was it the Jews? No, it was the Romans. The Romans said, we don't. We don't find any fault in this man. What, what are you bringing him here for? We need to release this man. The Jews said, oh, no. No, you don't. We need to crucify this man. So, again, even here we see the sovereignty of God at work even in Paul's life. Same thing. The Romans said, hey, we're going to protect him. The Jews wanted to tear him from limb to limb. Why? Because he's preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were having none of it. It's a stunning thing to comprehend. Again, brother, can we say it together? It is indeed another holy irony when you consider what our text is teaching us this morning, again, as a descriptive text. Now, there's another one that follows right on the heels of this one. Look there, if you would, verses 34, 35, and 36 of our text. Look there, if you would. Look what the Bible says. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. Again, we see they are absolutely want to tear him from limb to limb. For the multitude of the people followed after crying, what does that say? Away with him. Brethren, does that ring a bell at all? Does that ring, does that ring in your ears at all, the irony that we're seeing here? It's an amazing thing, brethren, it really is. And we're going to look at that. Look what it says. Away with him. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, may I speak unto thee? Who said, canst thou speak Greek? No, brother, and again, we see from the text, I, I mean, we've read it, that the people are so violent that now the soldiers are commanded to take Paul into, if you will, into the castle. It's a quite stunning thing. And again, as I said, a familiar song has been sung here as he pers as, uh, that really followed him up the steps as he's being taken captive, and the unbelieving lips of the Jews are shouting these words away with him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm always amazed at how little people are amazed. Because you realize that 27 years earlier, this same song was sung in almost the same spot by the same people. It's a stunning thing, brother. They don't change. Their motives don't change. Their evil intentions don't change. And their evil ways don't change. 27 years earlier, this same thing was said of someone else. And I want you to see this, again, almost in this exact same spot. The only two times in the Bible this phrase is used is here with Paul and one other man that we are so thankful was not sent away. 
Turn with me in your scriptures to John chapter 19. I want to show you this. The only other time this phrase is used by these Jews is against our Lord Jesus Christ. Against him in one of the trials. As I said, six trials. The Romans wanted to let him go. The Jews wanted him killed. Wanted him dead. And we see the same terminology. Isn't it amazing, brethren? Just all it is a little bit. It's just simply being, how should we say, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just simply being recapped a little bit differently, but it's the same old thing. Stunningly, isn't it? Look at John chapter 19. And again, we're going to see the Romans, who indeed wanted to release him. And the Jews cried something else. Look there, if you would, at John chapter 19. Look at verse number 12. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was in the, in the, when it was in the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour, and he said unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Same terminology, same thing they're doing to Paul. It's a stunning thing. Away with him. In fact, they double down. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Again, brethren, just utterly depraved, utterly unable to comprehend the gloriousness of the gospel of Christ. Same thing. Jesus is standing there. The gospel, the word himself is standing there. They just double down away with him. And so when God's holy preacher who wrote 14 of the New Testament books comes along and is preaching that gospel, all they can utter in their unholy, from their unholy lips is away with him. Away with him. We're not going to hear this gospel. We don't want to hear this gospel. Again, a most holy irony there. Now, let us uh, finish up here. Look at verses 37 of Acts 21, 37 through 40. And, and uh, I like uh, how that last verse kind of stops abruptly there and saying, well, that'll bring us in, Lord willing, to, well, Dean will preach next week, but the week after that. There's a reason why it's done that way. Look there at Acts chapter 21. Let's just read our final verses together here this morning. Look at verse 37. And as Paul was to be led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee, who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art not thou that Egyptian? What, what, a, what a strange thing for the chief captain to ask. Who's the Egyptian? Well, we're going to look at that and we'll be finished which before these days made us an uproar and led us out into the wilderness, 4,000 men that were murderers. But Paul said, I am a man, uh, am a Jew of Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, therefore, suffer me to speak unto the people. And we had given him his license, given him license. Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, imagine this, brethren, a great silence. This place was just in a, a moment ago in a complete uproar. They were ready to rip people from limb to limb. All of a sudden, Paul stands up and he speaks in the Hebrew and they all stop. They just stop. Just like that. Complete silence. And look what the Bible says there. And when it was made a great silence, he spake unto them in Hebrew tongue, saying, well, next week we'll look at what he, or in a couple weeks, Lord willing, we'll look at what he says. Again, this is the beginning of three sermons. Three defenses of the gospel of Christ, very important, before Felix, before the kings, before all of them. It's an amazing thing what God is doing here as he is arresting Paul, bringing him in, putting him in the castle, putting him in, in these places, it really is. Now, when Paul addresses this, the chief captain in Greek, he asks Paul if he's that Egyptian. Well, who's the Egyptian? Well, he had started a revolt in 54 AD. Historically, you can go look. That's why, again, the Bible is historically accurate. In 54 AD, this Egyptian that he's talking about actually existed and actually led a, led a revolt in Jerusalem. And there was 4,000 men, brother, and that followed him and believed what he was saying. It's, 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 it's like the Millerites. Hey, uh, you know, Jesus is coming back in 1842 on May 3rd, and thousands followed him out into the mountains. This is the same thing. He believed he was a prophet. He said, hey, follow me. We'll go out into the desert, 
And what we'll do is, at my command, we'll watch the walls of Jerusalem fall, and we'll also watch the Roman Empire fall. And this is exactly what happened. This man rolled into town, slicker than a devil's silver tongue, gets all of these people riled up. And so uh, the chief captain's looking at Paul going, are you an Egyptian? What are you? Are you this man? Because, believe it or not, the Roman army went out and killed thousands of them, but some got away, including this Egyptian. This is why he's asking, are you this guy? Are you the one that was here in 54 AD that was causing all this trouble and, and led this, if you will, this insurrection? That's why Paul says, no, I'm actually a Roman. I'm actually a citizen of Tarsus. Amen. I'm actually a citizen of this state. I'm not an insurrectionist. I'm not an Egyptian. I'm not that man. Amen. I'm a Roman citizen who is here uh, preaching the gospel. Amen. This is why he said that. I'm, I'm what? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a citizen of no mean city. Now, it's interesting that Josephus writes of this Egyptian. This is what he says in, an, in antiquity. It's an amazing thing. Historically, he writes of him and his followers who were called dagger men. Dagger as in, as in a large knife. That's what they were actually called because they would mingle with the crowds in Jerusalem during the festivals and then murder any pro-Roman Jew. If there was a pro-Roman Jew anywhere, they would take their daggers that they had concealed in their little old, shall we say, in their, uh, their long coats, they would pull it out and just simply do them in. That's why they were called dagger men. They'd go to the festivals, and if there was any pro-Roman Jews, you were done. This is, this is this cult. This is the thing that this Egyptian led, and this is what the chief captain's going, is that who you are? Is this who you are? Because we've been looking for you, by the way. And, uh, and anyway, so this is what it is. Historically, brethren, just so right and so true the Bible is here, even at that. Well, then Paul... Again, as he declares that he's not an insurrectionist against the empire, but rather a loyal citizen, he asks for permission to speak, as we've read in our text. He says, can I address the people? And, of course, the Bible says the chief here, here gives him what license? says, yeah, you go ahead. And there was silence, and Paul raises his hand. He's getting ready to speak, and he speaks to them in Hebrew from the stairs where he was at. And this begins the first, as I said, of three God-ordained defenses of the gospel that will indeed, as we move forward, take up major portions of chapters 22, 24, and 26. And we're going to see again how Paul views it. Now, how Paul says, me think myself happy that I get to stand before this other governor and preach the gospel to him. This, this is how Paul is viewing his imprisonment. And again, we said, right, for the next four years, he's under Roman imprisonment, where he writes four of his prison epistles. Amen. God used him there. But also, he viewed it as a great opportunity, not only to defend the gospel, but to preach the gospel to Festus, to all of these governors, to these kings, which is quite amazing. So that's what we're going to see him doing as we continue on here in our text. Now, let me just close with... Uh, there's a lot of practical things here for us to see, but one of the things that I took away from this is that God's works of providence, his works of sovereignty that we see here, are indeed a stunning thing for us to behold. We read it in the text. See, it's, it's kind of like, like when we read Job. <laughs> we like to read Job, but we don't like to be Job. It's, isn't that the truth, brethren? We, we like to read about Job because we saw what Job went through, and then we saw at the end what God did. Amen? Amazing. We like to read about him, but we don't want to be him. We like to read about Paul. We like to read about him being beaten and being arrested and all these things, but we really don't necessarily maybe like to be like him. But brethren, I'm convinced in my heart of hearts that we are being prepared for such a day as this. We are. We said it in Bible study this morning. Brethren, the world is not just neutral anymore concerning the holy things of God. If you want to raise your children, homeschool your children, and teach them the godly things of God, what do we get? We get like that teacher in Arizona last week. Did you hear that? <laughs> if you haven't, you need to hear it. Because the parents, those parents, who do those parents think they are? 
that they would look at one of their school books and say, is this the trash you're teaching my seven and eight and nine-year-olds? No, you're not having that. We're not having that in our schools. And of course, one of the good communists, feminazi swine, stands up at the meeting and says, who do you parents think you are? I have, I have a degree. What do you have? Mm-hmm. You've degreed yourself right into hell itself. Brethren, these days are coming. What we're reading here is something that may become very, very real to all of us. We read about Paul. We read about Job. We read about Peter. We read about these great men in Scripture. But a lot of times we don't want to be them because of what they've been brought through by God himself. But brethren, let me just say this. Brother Keith, I wish I could share the conversation we had this morning. I'm so thankful the Lord is using you in a little town like Washburn, North Dakota. It's a stunning thing. We, we need to see these. They, they need to be televised. I told Keith, we got to get these things up, man, because it's so fun to watch it. These little liberals spin themselves into a little hole. It's just amazing to watch it. But, brethren, it's in our backyard. It really is. It really is. It's here. Your children must be protected at all costs. We as brethren must protect each other at all costs. We must indeed watch over each other, and we must indeed, brethren, as the Bible says. Remember in Genesis, and i got to close. Remember what God told Adam? I'm going to put you in this place. I'm going to have you tend it and keep it. You know that word keep? You know what that means? It doesn't mean that he kept every law. It means that he guarded over what God said. Brethren, we must guard over what God is saying at all costs. Irregardless if a pointy-headed liberal stands up in a meeting and says, I have a doctoral degree. What do you have? Well, I have Acts, the book of Acts. In fact, I have a glorious portion in the book of Acts which says this. When they questioned Peter, they took note. Well, they understood that he was not a well-educated man. But they took note that he was with who? That he was with Christ. He was a converted man, a Bible-believing Christ believer who had his mind right concerning the things that are holy and unholy. And that's where we're at, brethren. We are right here. It's right knocking on our doors. So let's pray together this morning. Father, again, we, we thank you for this glorious history, this perfect and